All right, so this last chapter, O. Palmer Robertson wants to talk about the predictive peaks of Israel's prophetic movement. What are the highest points in all of the prophetic elements that Israel experiences? One of them is from Isaiah, one of them is from Jeremiah. And the two that we see specifically highlighted are Isaiah's challenge to prophecy, which we'll talk about momentarily, and then Jeremiah's prediction of 70 years of exile. So we'll take those each one at a time. First is Isaiah's challenge to prophecy. And in this, just broadly speaking, what Robertson is talking about is God issuing a challenge to all of the other false prophets, to all of the other false gods, to everyone around Israel and saying, you claim yourself to be God, so prophesy. So tell us what's going to happen. This is the challenge that is issued. The late chapters of Isaiah highlight this in particular. And Robertson calls God's focus in this a high ethical monotheism. So by ethical monotheism, he means not only a religion in which you have one God, but in which all of your ethics, all of everything you understand to be good comes from that God. And that sounds exactly like our God. God not only tells us what is good, but he is what is good. He is mercy. He is justice. And so all of these things are encapsulated in this. And to add the adjective high on there is just to, to speak of it in a very high, lifted up, glorious sort of way. So uh, they highlight this, and one element of it in particular is that God himself is actually going out of his way to mock these other gods, to point out their inadequacies. And one of the ways that he does this, as I said, is he highlights their muteness. They don't speak. They're not able to answer the cries for help, the prayers of the people who pray to them. He cannot answer those. And so multiple times over, Isaiah speaking on behalf of God issues a challenge to prophecy, calls out for these false prophets, calls out for these false gods to tell us something, prove that you can do it. I've got the citations on there, but multiple times through the latter parts of Isaiah, chapter 41, 43, 44, and so on. So God is calling out, demanding to hear, and the problem is, of course, that the false gods can neither hearken back to times in the past whenever they've made good on their promises or whenever they've prophesied about something that's going on now, nor can they successfully prophesy now, both of which the Lord is able to point back point to his people and say, look what I have done for you. Look back in Exodus when I promised you that I would save you, and I did. And look now to the things that I am promising you. Though you will be exiled, you will be brought back. All of these things God is actively doing. So he takes up his own challenge, and in particular, he issues three main prophecies. So that would be the next level bullet points. He prophesies the return of Israel from their exile. He prophesies specifically that Cyrus would be the one who delivers them from exile. And then lastly, this famous prophesying of the coming of the suffering servant of the Lord. And we know all those, those chapter 50 and on is where we start seeing that in Isaiah. So first, the return of Israel from their exile. Probably the one that Israel was most ready to hear not only because 
they knew that they were being sent into exile, but although the suffering servant is good, it's not always 100% clear to them how exactly that's going to be enacted. But they know what it means to return from exile. They know why that would be a good thing, because they know how deeply they're dreading descending into exile. So God points to his previous promises. As I mentioned, he looks all the way back to Exodus. He looks back to the covenants he's made with Adam, Noah, Abraham, so many promises that he has kept through the years, so many times when he has made promises to save them and he's made good on them. And he looks back on these and says, see what the false prophets cannot do. See how you're being tempted by these false gods. You're being called to them as though they can save you, and yet I am the only one who has evidence that I can actually do it. And it's important that God does this Because what he is demanding of them is not a small thing. He is exiling them from the land that he had promised to them. And so he wants them to know there is still a remnant. I do still love you. I am still with you. And my promises are not made void. So he wants them to attend to this carefully. Furthermore, the circumstances needed to make all of this happen have to be extraordinary. And Robertson highlights this to point out, this is not a lucky guess. This is not some shrewd political analysis. This is God looking forward and saying, I know that you will be in the hands of the mighty Babylonians, and I know that there will be no motivation from them to send you back. And in fact, rather, they have every motivation to keep you, to enslave you, to oppress you. And yet at the same time, God promises you will return. There will be return from exile. You will have the land. So the key that the Lord is showing them, just as in many prophecies in the past, you think in particular of um, women who were barren, who were promised children. You think of Samson's strength who was taken away and, and he cried out and God gave him one last thrust of strength. So many unlikely situations. And just as in those unlikely situations, God is promising, uh, I am with you. I have not forsaken you. When it comes to biblical interpretation, Robertson does spend a lot of time on this in several chapters prior. But he wants to focus in particular, there are people who deny that this prophecy is real. In other words, they deny the supernatural element of revelation. Oh, this is not God prophesying. This is just authors going back and modifying things after they saw how everything played out. And so uh, he makes some arguments. Some of them are good. Some of them are not quite so convincing to me. I think you go read them yourself if, if you're interested. But what is important to note is that on both ends of the stick, um, We are presupposing things. And Robertson rightfully points out that if you're denying the prophecy that's presented to you in the scriptures, one of the most likely reasons that you may be doing that is it fits with your presuppositions. You've already assumed that, well, prophecy can't happen, so I need to figure out what is actually going on here. So to interpret it this way contradicts what scripture says about itself. The self-attestation of scripture is what we call that. It ignores 
the anticipations of exile. It ignores the fact that these prophecies would have been available to the people at the time, that there's no way that we would not have seen massive problems in the historical record if there had been such substantial changes in the way that the prophecies were given. Because we know how the Jews treated the prophecies, how, how they treated the scriptures. So something like this would not have gone unnoticed. And most important, we just have to state outright that such a view on scripture and such a view on prophecy is not consistent with orthodoxy. And so if you're going to stay in the historic Christian faith, then you must confess the accuracy of the scriptures, the inerrancy, their God-breathed nature, and that includes, even if you find them hard to believe, these prophecies. And so if you want to step outside that, there are um, at least a few reputable scholars who bring up doubts about one prophecy or another, and you know, that makes a complicated issue, but we at least have to state outright, you cannot stay within the bounds of orthodoxy and deny the validity of these prophecies. Uh, Robertson, like I said, goes into much more detail speaking about biblical interpretation. I think it would be more fruitful um, to spend our time otherwise, though. So the next prophecy that Robertson highlights is specifically God's calling out as Cyrus as the deliverer of Israel. And this is a big deal because he calls him by name in the prophecy 100 years before this happens. And so this, again, is one of the convincing elements that God is giving them specificity when he makes promises to them. Isaiah 44:28, speaking of God, it says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. So God is the one who says that of Cyrus. He's assigned this role of the deliverer of Israel. He's the shepherd of Israel, which of course is typologically pointing to Christ. And this prophecy doesn't stand alone. It's interwoven into this latter parts of Israel, or sorry, of Isaiah, in which so many prophecies are made and so many promises. And so once again, if you're doubting the validity of the prophecy, it's very hard to extract this out by itself without having a major impact on the interpretation of all of Isaiah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we have, my whole household is sick, and believe it or not, I'm the one who sounds the best, so. The third prophecy is the coming of the suffering servant of the Lord. And this, of course, is the one that we all want to spend the most time on, we want to at least put the most attention on, this is probably not one that would have been fully understood by the Israelites at the time. And it can be difficult because the more well-versed you are in your scripture, the more powerful it becomes to you to read these prophecies and really understand this is what God was talking about, is Christ. But what, is he, what does he say exactly? So that He says that the exile and the return, this is Robertson, the exile and return of Israel are personally expressed. In other words, they are shown in one person rather than in all of Israel. They're personally expressed by the humiliation and exaltation of the suffering servant. So it, just as Israel was humiliated by their exile and then exalted as they returned, somewhat exalted, so Christ was humiliated when he came down to earth and he reached the peak of humiliation on the cross and yet he, 
even through that, he was exalted. Interestingly, the language of servant is applied both to the community of Israel as a whole and this individual that they're calling the suffering servant. And so the experiences that they have are parallel. We can see this uh, all the way back through the community of Israel, through the Exodus. There are biblical theologies that cover all of that. The prophecies of the servant, though, are future predictions, but they're spoken as though things that were happening in the past. So you skip down just a little bit, and you you see Isaiah 56. I offered my back to those who beat me. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Isaiah 53, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. 52, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So you see how even though this is still a prophecy, it's spoken in past language. And the key question, of course, that we've, we've assumed is who does this prophet speak about? And of course, the only man in all of Scripture who meets these prophecies is Christ. So for speaking of Christ, our discussion question, why is the suffering servant spoken about in the past tense? So he was preordained, good, yep. I don't know. It does? I'm sorry to say that it does. According to our esteemed pastor. Yeah, I have no clue, no clue. Um, But Robertson does make a point, this isn't totally my own question, Robertson does make a point to highlight this, this fact, so. So why else would it be? Why else do we speak about, did they speak about him in the past tense? Right. Yeah, it's bounded. It's going to, it's definitely, it's foreordained. It's definitely going to happen. God stands outside of time. Yeah, I think all of those elements are interlinked um, with the, the foreordination and, um, Kind of the already not yet idea, yep. Any other thoughts? I think everybody that has spoken is correct. The the one other thing that I came up with is specifically for Israel, highlighting all of these elements and why we want to do that is to show them how sure it was for their sake, for their encouragement. God stooping down and saying, listen, this is... My promise is so sure that we can speak about it as though it has already happened. And furthermore, for the sake of their salvation, it may as well have already happened. Because for the remnant that is saved, they're saved by Christ. They're looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ, and it is on him and him alone that they are saved. So the the saints of the Old Testament are not saved by anyone different or any different mechanism than that which we're saved by. So we've read these scriptures already. Next question. How do we answer those who claim that the scriptures were changed after the fact to make them seem like true prophecies? So this is a bit of what Robertson has an interest in talking about. But how do we answer these people?
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, my understanding is the scriptures have way more duplicates, copies. I forget what the, lang the language they use to describe those are, but they have way more evidence than any other previous manuscript by tens or hundreds of fold. So good, yeah, so evidence is certainly in that favor. Who else? I think the, yeah, go ahead. Someone? Nope. Just clicking your lips. So uh, I think that the evidence uh, approach is definitely a good, a solid one. And it can be, it can be more or less useful just depending on who you're talking to. Um, I often say, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, it's very useful to find out a person's motivations. You know, what do you believe? What do you think happened? And then approach it that way because we are all presupposing something and as I mentioned before there are honest scholars who have difficulties with things that are in the scriptures and that's okay there are also people who have decided beforehand that they simply can't be true and I would say that happens very often they decide beforehand that you know these scriptures were changed I've decided that because they're just prophecies don't exist and when you're speaking with someone like that, that assumption really has to be examined carefully because it's certainly not a given. And it's certainly not a given even by a, a scientific quote unquote worldview. Um, as I said, there, you will face all kinds of combinations of this. And again, this is something Robertson takes pains to show. There, there are many who have no problem believing that Christ rose from the dead and yet they struggle with Old Testament prophecies for some reason. There are some who doubt certain predictions. There are some who say that the prophecies just don't fit. And so you'll find all kinds of interesting combinations of these things. But again, it goes back to the orthodox belief of the Christian faith without getting too deep into some sort of apologetics course or anything like that. The orthodox stance is that the scriptures are inerrant, that they are true. And... Christ believes that. He speaks that way. And he takes the scriptures seriously and literally often in cases where we want to make excuses about taking them literally. And so if we're going to call ourselves Christians and, and follow in his example, then that's a pretty good example to follow. It's to take the scriptures seriously and to believe them as Christ believed them. That covers the first as Robertson calls it, predictive peak in the history of Israel that happened out in Isaiah. And the second one is through Jeremiah, this prediction of 70 years of exile, which, as it turns out, is a pretty astonishing prediction as well, that Israel would serve Babylon for 70 years and after 70 years would return to their land. And these are two separate predictions, which is an important distinction. Two different promises, both of which had important meaning for Israel, one of which was, of course, dreadful, and another of which that they're able to put their hope in. Historically, the 70 years from the date that that, that prophesi prophecy was given matches exactly to the date that Israel returns from exile, which is one reason why I say it's Astonishing. It should not surprise us if we're taking 
the scripture seriously as I've been talking about this whole time. But it is, it's amazing that it ma- it's so clear. There are so many predictions in the scriptures that are less clear and we, you know, you have to hold your nose right or squint a little bit to look at the dates because we're not always sure about our date estimations. But this one we know with certainty because Cyrus made a decree. And we know when this prophecy was made, and we know when Cyrus made the decree, and it was 70 years precisely. Furthermore, 70 years has already been mentioned as the date, the amount of time that was necessary for Israel's neglected Sabbaths to be covered, for the land to rest. There's a long chunk of Leviticus here. I'll let you read it on your own time. But in short, it says, if you don't listen to me, then I will exile you, and your land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you're in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. And so basically, God here is saying, if you don't give the, the land rest, and if you don't do what I've commanded, then I'll make it happen on your behalf. And then in Second Chronicles, speaking of the amount of time that they were exiled from the land, It says, this was done to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. So this is made very explicit. This is not some biblical interpretation that, you know, someone who's been spending way too much time in their Old Testament has come up with. It's made very clear that the 70 years is the amount of time specifically needed for it to be made right for the land to enjoy its Sabbaths. As you can see, Robertson spends significantly less time on this section, but he emphasizes it as equally important. So, with these in mind, what is the biblical theological significance of Israel's restoration? And there's, once again, a couple of, as every good Presbyterian knows, you have to give like four or five reasons for everything that you say. So, he has uh, four or five reasons listed out here, I believe. Most important is that Israel's restoration involves the forgiveness of sins. So this return to the land is not merely a shifting of living space. It is just as the Passover and the Exodus are related, so the suffering servant is related to the restoration of the land. So it's not Israel just moving from one place to another. This is rather God giving them means by which to achieve the promises and to receive the promises that he has given them. The Passover, in the case of the Exodus story, um, well, it's exactly what it sounded like. There was death coming on the firstborns, and in essence, God said, "If, if you will take my firstborn captive, if you will take my son captive, speaking of Israel, then I will take yours. So all of the Israelites, because of the blood of the lamb, as you'll remember the story, wiped the blood on their door and were passed over by the judgment of the Holy Spirit. The same way here, the suffering servant of Isaiah is the blood of that lamb because this is Christ. And so Israel is only able to return from the exile return from the destruction that was promised by Babylon, return from the oppression into the promised land because of the action of the suffering servant. And so, of course, as we extend that out, how is it that we have any hope of promise? How is it that we 
have a hope that we will have anything beyond this life other than suffering. It's only because of the suffering servant. It's only because of the blood of the lamb. So we, too, will be restored from our exile. We're supposed to be sojourners here in this life, knowing that this is not our home. And Christ has prepared a place for us. So you see all through the course of Scripture, Old Testament to New, and even into our lives now, how present this reality is for us, how important this is. Furthermore, Jeremiah promises the destruction of the, en- of the enemies of Israel when they return. So this is both sides of the coin, and again, we see this many times over. When Israel is saved, someone is judged. We see this all the way back, the water judgment of the flood, in which eight were saved and the whole world was destroyed. We see all the way back in the Exodus story that we've mentioned a few times already, how Israel escaped, and on the same ground that they escaped and passed through safely, all the Egyptians were judged. And so we see over and over and over again as Joshua brings them into the promised land, they come into the promised land with a sword, cleansing the land. And once again, whenever they are returned from exile, it's at the expense of the Babylonians. And so time and time again, the salvation of Israel is accompanied by judgment. And part of that is because it's not wholly right simply to call the salvation of Israel salvation, but it is actually judgment of Israel, and they are judged right. And why are they judged right after all of this that we've spoken about time and time again? It's because that judgment is put on Christ, and so Israel is clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and they can be judged rightly. We see this promise, you'll remember I'm talking about forgiveness actually. Um, You see this promise that Israel's restoration involves forgiveness uh, made explicit in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 50 verse 20, he says, In those days at that time, declares the covenant Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found, for I will forgive the remnant I spare. Which is a shocking verse because when you think about how much of the Old Testament we just spent reading through, if you had been reading straight through the Old Testament, how many pages, how many chapters, how many hours did you spend reading about the sin of Israel? And God says, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none. Search will be made for New Covenant's guilt, but there will be none. I mean, let that land on you. Let it land on you that God will look for your guilt and, there, and it's not to be found. It's not there because of Christ. Robertson brings this home for us. He says, if sin and its accompanying guilt were the cause of Israel's exile, which it most certainly is, then the forgiveness of sin and the removal of guilt must be essential to restoration after exile's judgment. This forgiveness comes through the promise of a new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31, which Travis preached on for us last week. If you need to read it again, please read it again. How good is that promise? In Daniel in chapter 9, he says, We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. 
how true does that ring for us now? And Israel was believing that, knowing their need for that, as far back as the Old Testament. So another discussion question. Compare and contrast the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the sacrifice of Christ. How are they similar? How are they different? Say the first part again. Oh, the covering, yes. Yeah, the sacrifice is covered. The difference is that Christ's covering is forever. Good. Testament sacrifices are foreshadowing. Anyone else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Yeah, the lamb that they sacrificed had to be without blemish, the firstborn. It had to be clean, had to be perfect. Yep, just as Christ was perfect. Yeah, theirs was, they lived in a culture of blood. And it was a very bloody, a bloody culture. And why don't we, why is our picture not bloody now? Once for all. The one time, strike the rock once, right? As Moses learned. So Christ's sacrifice is once for all. He was the pure, the holy one of Israel. He was the lamb without blemish. And he is the lamb who was slain. So next we think about, in addition to forgiveness, Israel's restoration involves a new life of grace. So even this remnant, we remember that God promised a remnant, but even they are deserving of God's wrath. And so they're dependent on that forgiveness that we spoke about. But God watches over all of his people. He prospers them key in all of this is to remember we've been speaking about a remnant but again Robertson sees fit to make this explicit which is good remember that God's grace speaking in terms of salvific grace is not for all there's common grace that started with Noah after the flood that covers the world the the rain falls on the just and the unjust and yet I can remember how shocking this was to me to think about for the first time there's a John Piper sermon series on Romans which is unbelievably long it's like 160 something sermons I have not I have not listened to all of them but the very first one I've listened to many times with the intent of making it through all of them and the first one starts out with as you would imagine Romans 1 1 and the way that he introduces the letter Paul is to those who are loved by God. And I never thought much of that, but John Piper sure did. And he makes the point that 
this is not just the general love of God, but this is, you know, it's the example he gives is if I wrote a letter to the one I love, who would you expect that to be to? My wife. Not just anyone that I love, but my wife. One with a special love, a covenant love. And that's what Paul is saying to those who are loved by God. There is a special people who are loved by God. And we see that back in the Old Testament, too, that there is special grace for the remnant. That there is a special love that God has. It is not by accident that those who are saved are saved. It is because of God's special love and special grace for them. And this grace foreshadows the grace to the Gentiles from Christ. And so God has a love not just for national Israel, but he loves his people, spiritual Israel. He loves the elect in this special way. Third, restoration involves the inclusion of the Gentile nations. This we've already alluded to a little bit. Um, James speaks about this in Acts when he quotes Amos. That's a lot of books of the Bible. So James in Acts is speaking and quotes Amos of the Gentiles and he speaks of the Gentiles as those with the name of the Lord on them. You can see that in Acts 15, verses 13 through 18. He calls the Gentiles those with the name of the Lord on them as a seal. That's the name that's for Israel. Israel is the one who has the name of the Lord on them. And so how can the Gentiles have that? Well, Paul answers us. Romans 9:25. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. I think um, maybe David Prussia last week spoke about that. Is that right? Does anyone remember? He probably used the Hebrew. But there is some Hebrew, but what he says is, those who were called not my people, you will be called my people. And this harkens all the way back to this exile because God was kicking them out of the land. So what is he calling Israel when he kicks them out of the land? You're not my people anymore, which is... uh, frightening for Israel, and yet it's not permanent. There is a remnant. There is a people of God. Yes, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So, remember, Israel was split well before the exile, North Kingdom and South Kingdom. And the North Kingdom was exiled and lost first. They dispersed into the world. And so, 
Robertson, I think, makes that point, right? Is basically the northern kingdom is the world. They are the Gentiles. It's kind of the symbolic, right? And so, as Pastor Dave was saying, if there is going to be one kingdom, it can't be, there can be no way to do that, but not only to bring in the lost, the lost tribes, but, but the whole world. Um, and that's not to, by the way, forget that I certainly think there are apostles there that are Well put.
All right, yeah, if I may very briefly. That's, this is a very interesting conversation, but we'll conclude and then uh, you'll have 15 minutes before the worship service begins. So very briefly, we were speaking of restoration involves the Gentile nations, which is obviously a very important topic for us. Another key component of this is that Paul speaks about his duties to the Gentiles as a priestly duty, which is very interesting, hearkening back to Old Testament priestly duties. He actually describes it using those words, a priestly duty, and his goal is to present the Gentiles as an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Spirit. Um, so this would be a very radical inclusion for Old Testament Israel, and yet one that has been foreshadowed well, well prior, as early as Genesis, it has been foreshadowed. And lastly, restoration involves rejuvenation of the earth, climaxing with the resurrection of the dead. So, very briefly, exile is pictured in decreation language. So when the prophecies are speaking most harshly about the nature of exile, they, Jeremiah says, I looked on the earth, behold, it was with, without form and void, hearkening back to pre-creation state of the world. The heavens had no light, the mountains were quaking, and so on. Zephaniah says, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked, which should remind you of flood language, another instance of decreation. Restoration is thus viewed as recreation. And so we'll skip over that discussion question. The point of the language is exactly what I've said. It's to understand the devastation as decreation is relating this to the flood, and recreation foreshadowing the greater recreation of the people of God. And we see from the beginning to the end, so in Micah, Zechariah, there's garden language used whenever the Israel was restored to the land. And you can hearken that all the way from Genesis, garden language, which is destroyed by sin, all the way forward to Revelation, where once again, in our final state, um, garden language is used as part of the promises of eternity, the eternal hope that we have. And um, to relate it back briefly to that conversation, that is the land that we are promised, the whole world, the heavens and the earth, made new, um, a garden for us to keep and to tend to and to enjoy God forever. So. Thank you for some very interesting conversation. Um, barring any last thoughts, we are out of time. So probably use the 13 minutes in between to express some more interesting conversation. Let's pray.